When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Stocks for Beginners. There's also a phenomenon known as the hype cycle out there, which you want to go out and invest in things that are innovative. You want to go out and find things that are cutting edge. But on the other hand, the market tends to build up the expectations to these to be so high, you can actually get burned and lose a lot of money if you buy a company where the expectations are far, far too high. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Where do you find the most innovative companies and how can you identify them? What are the secrets of machine learning, cloud computing, biotechnology and digital payments? What rocks do you need to turn over to find the mega trends of the future? Joining me to talk about investing in innovation is Simon Erickson. Hello, Simon. Hey, good morning, Phil. Hope that things are finding you well in the Southern Hemisphere. (laughs) That's great. And I hope things are going well in the evening over there in uh, Houston. Always a pleasure to be here chatting about stocks with you. Simon Erickson is the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. He's an over-the-horizon investor looking for disruptive innovation. So let's just go back in time a little. Tell us about your life leading up to this point. Oh, sure, Phil. So uh, I actually, if you can believe it, started as an engineer. I was a chemical engineer that uh, traded in the swatting mosquitoes in a chlorine production block for being in technical sales. Uh, My fellow engineers reminded me that I turned to the dark side when I made that move. (laughs) But it was going out and it it was basically finding innovation. Every company out there that we were selling special fluids to wanted to have something that was cutting edge. It would sell at higher prices and higher margins. And so it kind of gave me a appreciation for what was going on in organic agriculture or deep water drilling or personal care products or whatever it might be that we were selling. And I started to realize there were all these pain points that every market had to solve. And uh, following an MBA, which happened in there too, and entrepreneurship, I, I said that I wanted to go into renewable energy. And so we started building out business plans for a large oil company and their renewable energy strategy. And a lot of it was solar panels, actually with solar power, solar thermal specifically. And, and so we would do that. We'd figure out the finances, you know, we'd go out and make some acquisitions with the venture capital group and so on. And then I really turned to the dark side where rather than looking at all this from the internal of a company, of one specific company, uh, I went to work for The Motley Fool for seven years and started to look from the outside in finding opportunities, finding those pain points that markets were experiencing, figuring out where the innovation was taking place, and actually making investments in the best in breed companies. And uh, my favorite chapter of the entire story thus far started in March of 2020. That's when we founded Seven Investing. It's a team of myself and six other lead advisors who are doing the, the same thing. We're going out and we're finding our very, very best opportunity in the stock market Each and every month, we're compiling those seven ideas together into a subscription product, which is our seven investing membership. That's where I am today. What I'm struck by, it seems to be this well-worn path, especially amongst you and your advisors, that you haven't come from a finance background, that you've come from somewhere else, and especially from academic backgrounds or, like yourself, engineering backgrounds. So it's like coming from investing from a completely different angle from someone who's gone to Harvard or the Wharton School or any of those major business schools. I agree, Phil. I actually really like having a diversified team. And we've got some uh, 
some horsepower, you know, on this team of advisors. We've got two PhDs, two that have master's degrees, military perspective, computer science background, biotechnology background. I mean, it's kind of important to see things from a different perspective. We've got seven of them. We're not afraid to pull the punches for each other either when we talk with each other about our stock picks every month. The Q&A of our deep dives tends to get pretty interesting. <laughs> well, that, that's the thing as well, because you always have to come up with a thesis, but then it's a great thing to have that thesis tested. And I think new investors really should understand that that uh, just because you get an idea in your head about something doesn't mean it's actually going to be right, that you should test it as um, robustly as possible. Yeah, definitely different perspectives makes all of us better investors. I certainly agree. So what was your first investment and was it a good or bad one? Well, believe it or not, it was uh, it was GE. I was uh, working for GE, technical sales at the time, so put a lot of money into the stock as well. Luckily, I actually got out of that before GE Finance turned into some problems right there in the recession of 2008. But uh, you know, it kind of was a diversified company, had a lot of different irons in the fire. It kind of exposed me to a lot of different things, whether it was finance and the bank of GE, if you want to call that, aircraft engines, chemicals. I mean, GE had a whole bunch of stuff going on. It kind of was interesting to see how a company that large was allocating its capital. I know you were working there, but um, what was your thinking in terms of getting there? Did you actually think about it? In terms of investing for the company? In terms of investing, yeah. Yeah, just kind of fascination. You know, It actually led me to some fertilizer companies that I invested in too, because I went out and saw what was going on out there. Personal care companies, the same kind of thing. I guess maybe your first investment for a lot of us is kind of what you know, right? Invest in what you know, invest in what you're comfortable with. That was my world at the time, so that's what I knew. Mm. That's interesting. My father worked uh, for a subsidiary for GE about uh, 20 years ago as well. It was a huge company, diversified company. It wasn't just finance, was it? To say the least, Phil, a huge company and very diversified, absolutely. I'm not sure I would recommend that as an investment, but certainly at the time, it opened my eyes. Yeah, and what about the fertilizer companies? There was a big push in organic farming. That was one of the big drivers. And then also kind of the ROI on fertilizer was pretty terrible for a while. Companies were trying to come up with liquid fertilizers, a more efficient way of getting nutrients in the crops, coming up with new formulations. We played a large role in a lot of that stuff. And so that was when you were working with the engineering firm as well. Was that the case? Agrium, Potash, you know, these kind of giant diversified cartels, if you will. A lot of them are Canadian. Those were a lot of companies that were really going through a whole lot of consolidation at the time. Yeah. Was there any light bulb moment when you realized that you had to look further than the latest company report in terms of finding um, companies to invest in? Yeah, the, uh, the light bulb moment was when you realized that 70 to 80% of trading is taking place algorithmically, which means it's just computers that are doing it based on quantitative numbers that they're looking at, which are those same fundamentals that are just being reported every single quarter that everybody's got immediate access to. And by the way, if you're doing international trading, you know, it's more like 94% is algorithmic trading. And if you want to compete against that, uh, it's really, really hard. You know, it happens so, so quickly, and it's all just driven by the numbers, earnings per share, hit or miss, you know, revenue growth versus expectations, things like that. We don't have a big advantage as individuals, unless you think in a fraction of a second, which I certainly do not. But what I like to do is, is look back, really kind of step back from the quarter to quarter or those pure numbers that you're seeing in all those quarterly reports and just say, okay, how is a company actually spending its R&D budget? And are they getting higher priced products that they're developing because they're a step ahead of others? How's the competitive composition looking? How is the market changing? Is it expanding? Is it going to be really competitive? Or are you actually going to have some freedom for some pricing power? A lot of it's kind of influenced by that background that I had in sales. I mean, it's just kind of putting a different spin on that. You still see that markets are changing. You still see that companies are trying 
to get the best bang for their own buck. It's just now from an investing perspective, you mix in some valuation work with that as well. And those are the kind of companies that I want to be investing in. It's a much, much longer term horizon rather than the quarter of the quarter you know, fight that we're having against computers out there. That's a really interesting figure. What is it? 70 to 80% and 90% of international trading is algorithmic. I just wanted to dwell on that for a moment. Where is this trading happening? Who is instituting that trading? Where does it come from? Yeah, we've got, you know, $35 trillion of retirement funds in the US, right, Phil? I mean, this is a huge pool for institutions that might have $20 billion, might have $100 billion or more of assets under management. And of course, when you've got that large of funds, all of it is your risk profile. You know, you want to play offense, but you also want to play a lot of defense. And a lot of that have got hard rules on where they can allocate, how large of a position they can have. Does it have to be a dividend-paying company? Does it have to have a certain market capitalization of the company? I mean, all of those are kind of written in the software and algorithms that govern where those monies are going. If you're a retail investor, you know maybe a $35,000 uh, account is, is a large account for you, right? And that's one billionth of the $35 trillion that's in retirement of funds. So you can find opportunities out there that aren't necessarily playing by the same rules. But at the end of the day, good companies are good companies. Innovation is innovation. Large funds are going to eventually come around to where the cash flows are and where the innovation is taking place. And these large funds are doing this, obviously, to take away the emotion, whereas someone who's got that $35,000 to invest, it's all about the emotion, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we play with different rules. We're actually, in many ways, hardwired, not by algorithms, but by our own minds. You know, it stings twice as much to lose money as the gratification you get from making money. And so we've got to fight our own emotional biases. But my goodness, Phil, that's a completely different podcast we could have another day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd just like to take these uh, turns every now and then. Absolutely. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What are some of the ways that you look for the trends of the future? I mean, you can talk on your own behalf or on behalf of the other advisors as well. I'm a top-down style investor, which means that I look for the trends that are developing at the market level. And then from those, I try to find the solutions. And then from those solutions, the companies that are tapping into those. And so my approach for years, for probably near a decade now, has been to go, go to conferences, um, more in person in a couple of years ago, and more virtually and remotely in this post-COVID world we've been living in. But I tend to think in terms of the market is going to do what the market's going to do. It's going to get tired of the solutions that are legacy or antiquated or are not providing a good enough return for its customers. And I tend to look at which way the wind is blowing first and foremost, and then kind of let that govern where I'm interested in putting my investing dollars to work as a next step. What are the kind of conferences you attend? Got South by Southwest this next month, so heading back up to Austin again. That'll be nice. I went to a bunch of biotech conferences in San Diego. Every single year, would go to an MIT conference up in Boston, Collision Conference, which is in Toronto, used to be in New Orleans years ago. The idea is to see, 
either a leader of an organization or even an academic, you know, a PhD or a postdoc, talk about what they're really excited about right now and, and why they're dedicating so much time to doing these things. Phil, I was a guy that would actually try to separate myself from the rest of the crowd because I didn't want anyone to be annoyed by me typing onto my laptop as quickly as possible. But I'd take notes, just you know, voraciously absorb everything that I could for two or three days of the conference. Um, on the airplane ride back, we would just digest it and then for the next couple of days, figure out what was really going on out there. And that kind of now sets the scene. You say, okay, what are my options now as a publicly traded investment vehicle to tap into these trends? That's kind of the approach that I would take. And it's been that way for, I would say, at least six or seven years now. And here I am thinking that South by Southwest is all about alt country music. <laughs> and that's part of the fun of it. And the tacos and the, and the margaritas. and everything. I mean, Austin is a perfect place for this, right? It used to be a film festival, you remember? Yeah, that's right. I can't wait to go there. That's one of my dreams to go to South by Southwest. Can you give us a real world example of one of these experiences when you were researching at a conference and then came away with an idea for a stock? Yeah, specifically uh, a couple of years ago, there was kind of the beginnings of this migration to the cloud where large companies were realizing they needed to start rethinking where they were storing their data and where they were doing the computing for it. And so a specific conference I remember was Cloud Expo out there in, in Silicon Valley, San Francisco. And the thing that kept coming up that everybody was talking about in multiple presentations over and over and over again was the shift to developing software it kind of was changing. Cloud native software was very different from how they were traditionally doing things. We call this now today DevOps. You know, there's not just a centralized administrator that's kind of pulling everything together and then figuring out when you're going to roll out an update for your software application that you have. It was allowing kind of these microservices, if you will, or these containers to piece by piece, allowing people to do them independently and remotely, where you didn't have to all pull together into this kind of massive upgrade that was previously being done. And so everybody that was doing containers and adopting them was saying the same thing. Hey, we love this. We love the independence. We love the working remotely. Uh, we love this DevOps movement. But we've got this problem with security that now all of a sudden we're each contributing our piece. We certainly don't have the same security infrastructure that an enterprise network was having, a firewall was having. And so how can we protect ourselves on the laptops and the iPads that we're doing from our boxer shorts at three in the morning you know, in our living room? And so it kind of was the solution that was born out of that was endpoint protection for cybersecurity. There was a need for protecting all of these different services, which were all of a sudden exposed for bad actors to start planning malware on devices. But if you could protect those devices, you could still continue to do this containerized version of software development. And so CrowdStrike was the publicly traded company that came from a traditional software vendor traditional cybersecurity software vendor and said, hey, the cloud is moving much faster than we had anticipated. Hey, we see developers are wanting to do things remotely. We need to have endpoint security and we're really going to focus on containers. And it's become a fantastic investment opportunity. If you followed their story for several years now, incredible returns for investors. But that didn't just come out of nowhere. That came from a trend that we saw brewing for several years from the security industry related to DevOps. So tell us about what you actually did see brewing. Can you specifically talk about that? It was the pain points. You know, you would see the people on stage. They didn't necessarily know even what, you know, CrowdStrike was going to be a preferred solution. But they said, hey, we want to do containers. We need centralized type protection for us doing the development out there. All of a sudden, that's the top down. That's the market need. That's the pain point you see. Then all of a sudden, you've got, okay, now you've got a platform, the Falcon platform that CrowdStrike was creating, saying, yes, okay, we're going to have modules that can protect different components 
of you as you're developing these things for us, cloud-based, cloud-native software. And we're going to make it where you can price it on the user and they can work from anywhere they want to. And it's endpoint, so it doesn't matter where you are. It's the device security itself. And so it kind of, you know, you see the need, and then you see the solution, and then you see the company, and then you see the publicly traded company. That leads you a lot of times to, I think, in my opinion, the type of investing I like to do. And that's really something that is so important and is happening in so many areas at the moment where there's pain points. I mean, I can just think off the top of my head, several examples straight away. Competitors to Uber, for example, traditional taxi companies suddenly going, oh, we've got to change everything. And there are companies supplying solutions for that. Sorry, that was just my little rave (laughs) about technology. Oh, no, no problem. I've got another one, Phil. I mean, Affirm was another example too. The buy now, pay later used to just be called transparency and lending. Right? Like we weren't even calling this buy now, paid later in conference a couple of years ago. I saw Max Levchin, who's the CEO of the company now, you know, co-founder of it, basically saying, we've got to fix this. People are getting over the head clobbered by credit card fees and then late payment fees and then interest fees. I mean, it's just basically companies are, are siphoning money out of the wallets of people that are doing bad behavior. What if we can improve transparency in finance? And so you see a firm, it's not being called buy now, but pay later. But even that is not built upon credit cards. You have to pay basically with a debit card up front with a firm in these installment payments. But again, industry problem, company with solution, publicly traded investment vehicle, a firm has been up until recently, as there's concerns about retail, uh, really a fantastic option for investors right out of the gate. Mm. And that's where so many developments are happening as well as in fintech as well. The uh, the traditional powers of the, the large financial institutions are being slowly eroded away. Absolutely. And I really think that you know our advisors, I, I speak for myself in my approach, but I think so many of our advisors are thinking the same way too. It's like, you know, they're forward looking, they're looking at the industry. They have a lot of great background and experience directly in this. That's how you find the 10 baggers that are going to change your portfolio. Mm. There's so many great company stories, (laughs) so many of them, and many of them just don't go anywhere. What are your filters that you use to try and reduce the risk of being taken in just by the story itself? This is a great question, Phil, because there's also a phenomenon known as the hype cycle out there, which you want to go out and invest in things that are innovative. You want to go out and find things that are cutting edge. But on the other hand, the market tends to build up the expectations to these to be so high, you can actually get burned and lose a lot of money if you buy a company when the expectations are far, far too high. Perfect example is 3D printing. If you remember the 3D printing craze from several years ago, we thought that there was going to be 3D printers in everybody's office and everyone's living room, and no one was buying Christmas gifts anymore because you were just printing them in the printer behind you. But the reality of that is that everybody didn't want to learn how to use these things. It was far too complicated for a lot of people that were outside of prototyping, and it still had its niche and it had its, its place. You know, Prototyping for automotive was the largest customer base, but it's certainly the expectations got far ahead of themselves. And those companies like the Stratasys and the 3D systems of the world had valuations that were far too high. There were other companies, though, that were finding industrial applications for 3D printing. They were doing them, you know, making it out of titanium, making aerospace parts out of it, hip implants, things like this, that they were really at the high end of the market that made sense for 3D printing. But again, you've got to kind of balance out. I, I almost raise an eyebrow, you know, and it's a red flag for me if you see an investor presentation that has got some gaudy addressable market, right? If you see an investor presentation that's saying, oh, we're going to go after a $500 billion market or a trillion dollar market, 
to me, that kind of is a turnoff. That's kind of like, ah, you really need to define your market a little bit more clearly and show the progress you're making. The only reason you would want to say you have a massive market is if you're Google and you don't want to get hit with antitrust regulations, right? Look for companies that are executing well and really know where their strengths lie rather than just trying to go too much too fast. So that's often called a TAM estimate, total addressable market. And again, I just want to hammer home this point. This is something to be careful about for investors who might be taken in by a story. That's right, Phil. You know, another one that's really big is healthcare, right? Everybody's always pointing out that healthcare is a $4 trillion market domestically here. And there's so much of an opportunity for drug developers to do things completely differently and disruptively and everything else that's kind of going to catch that hype cycle, right? Because it's a really regulated market. It's really capital intensive. It's really hard to change doctors' behavior, especially the more and more serious a condition gets. And so one other example of maybe that fits this mold is Organovo. Organovo was going to 3D print human organs, and if not organs, tissues, to improve the safety profile of new drugs that were being developed and kind of just disrupt clinical trials as we know it. You know, if you, if you looked at presentations, they were claiming this. But again, this does not happen overnight. It's super expensive to change behaviors, especially in highly regulated industries. Organova's had a dilution problem of its investors for several years now. It's been a terrible investment for anyone who's gotten in for at least a, a year or two or more than that. Be on the lookout for companies that it seems too good to be true, especially in really, really tough markets to crack like that one. And especially if they use the word disruptive too much. <laughs> exactly. Clayton Christensen, the innovator's dilemma writer, he had this meant to describe a very specific phenomenon. Disruptive innovation works. But even he was like, hey, be careful. You're not going to disrupt everything. And the market is always right, too. I always love it when people say, oh, well, you know, a reasonable valuation is this or the market's got it wrong. This No, the market is always right. You've got to adapt to what the market's going to do. You can have conviction in something that you think the market hasn't seen yet, but as investors, we should be careful to not get frustrated if our thesis doesn't play out, because at the end of the day, we represent a very, very small percentage of the amount of money that's being trading hands over there. We've covered about how many conferences you attended and um, the kind of business and academic leaders you talk to, but can we just talk a little bit about what those conversations sound like. Do you have a set of questions in your head already or are you a bit more free-formed than that when you're trying to work out what's going on? Yeah, Phil, if you can believe it, for four years, I went to a conference every single month uh, with the exception of December for Christmas and during Hurricane Harvey here in Houston. Otherwise, it was basically, you know, straight almost 50 conferences in a row. The conversations themselves would typically start with just listening to presentations and if possible, working out an interview with the presenters directly after that. You can get a hold of people, especially if you have press credentials, uh, to chat with them afterwards. And the conversation would generally start with, what are you really excited about? Why are you devoting so much time and dedicating your research to this topic you're discussing? MIT especially was this way. And then kind of, I would make it a point to follow up every six months or a year with uh, the people that I thought were brilliant and just say, you know, what are you up to now? What are you excited about doing today? You know, we talked about a year ago. Here's the podcast we put out there. How are things going now and what has changed? I tend to rely on industry leaders much more than my own personal perspective because there is a bias. They, of course, want to have their own company well represented and they're optimistic about what they're doing. But they also, if they are good leaders, they're objective and they see how things are out there and they're willing to change course too based on what the market's doing. 
And so I tend to look for those. I look for innovative leaders. I look for those that I think that are ahead of the trend, but also ones that are maybe even an academic perspective sometimes and willing to change course if the wind blows a different direction. And it's interesting, isn't it, trying to filter out those people that you feel like you can actually trust what they're saying rather than they're just um, hype merchants who are going to be continually hyping up their own stock. You can fine-tune your radar for those, right? After a while, you can kind of figure out who's blowing smoke versus who actually means what they're saying. (laughs) That's right. Have you got any words of advice for first-time investors? I think that investing is very personal. You know, it's something that you should always understand what type of investor you are and then look for companies that match that type of investor. What I mean by that is that there's never going to be someone else managing your money for you that's going to perfectly represent how you would manage your own money. It's always going to be a little bit of the puzzle piece doesn't quite fit exactly as you'd like it to. And we each have our own risk tolerances and their own industries that we're comfortable with. But our approach with 7investing has always been to let us do some of the research for you, but then hand the torch off, pass the torch, if you will, for you to make decisions on your own. And again, it gets back to investing as personal. If you are a risk-averse investor, where you're going to not sleep well at night if one of the companies you've bought into falls by 10 or 20%, then you probably want to look for more stable, blue-chip, dividend-paying companies that are something you can say, hey, I really feel good about this, and I think that it's got great competitive advantages versus the others that are in its industry. Versus myself as an investor, Phil, I tend to be a little more risk tolerance. I don't mind if a company that I have in my investment portfolio falls by 50% or more. That I'm comfortable with. I might actually be looking to add a lot of times if I think the market has gotten it wrong. But again, that's a different risk profile. I think we should all understand ourselves as investors. And that will make your returns and your ability to sleep much more uh, (laughs) doable at the end of the day. Investing is meant to be a long-term vehicle. You don't want to be stressing yourself out on a daily basis. And I think that's important to understand, especially right now. We're recording in early February 2022. And um, we've seen a lot of companies on the NASDAQ really get sold off recently. And I think for a lot of people, they might not have had that experience before. And that's when you really understand about yourself and how you personally are going to feel about risk in your investing life. It really is. I mean, I like to tell the story back in 2008 when my portfolio was down 40% at one point. And I'll never forget my own wife asking me, hey, isn't the point of the stock market for us to actually make money, not lose all of our money? Right, You go through those moments of doubt, especially in times like January and February. That's part of the price of admission for the long-term returns that you get from the stock market. If you want something that's steadily going to go up in a straight line, you buy treasury bills, you buy bonds, you buy very low-risk investments. The success of the stock market never follows a straight line. We say that it's a 10.5% long-term return for the S&P 500, but that doesn't look like 10.5% every single year. Uh, Some years where it's up 30%, 27%, some other years it's down 10 years, 10 or 15% or even more than that. But you've got to have the right conditioning that you don't need the money tomorrow to pay your mortgage. Otherwise, you're going to sell and you're going to freak out when the market sells off and you're going to shoot yourself in the foot. But if you're looking over a five-year period, preferably a 10-year period, you find the right companies, let this compounding machine, which is companies using your capital to put it into projects that are going to return better than a bank account or a bond or a treasury bill, or a lower risk investment vehicle. I mean, that's where you get true compounding and long-term wealth generation. That's what we're trying to do out there and in investing in the stock market. And that's also one of the beautiful things about uh, buying company stock is that you've got 
these founders and CEOs and everyone who works for that company basically working on your behalf. You're part owner of that company. Right now, especially, the decisions are going to be incredibly important. We are in a higher inflation environment. We are in a rising interest rate environment. This is going to make it right now feel very difficult for newcomers, new entrants to enter capital-intensive industries. And so those leaders, those visionary leaders that have a plan in place and they've got a strong balance sheet right now, they've got a huge advantage from this market sell-off that we've been seeing. It's going to wipe a lot of their competitors out, especially those that took on too much debt or made bad decisions early on. It's going to be an interesting year for 2022. I think, quite honestly, it's a stock picker's market right now. Mm. And it's um, reflective of earlier times, like the internet crash of the early 2000s, where prior to that in the late 90s, any company that had .com in its name suddenly became very valuable. But then a market crash managed to weed out all of the weeds, leaving the best companies behind. Yeah, absolutely. We saw a lot of money flowing through SPACs, through kind of alternative investment vehicles, and some of them really put a lot of money on their balance sheet, and good for them. They're taking full advantage that it did that well. Space Race is really picking up, commercial space economy. We raised a lot of money last year. A lot of money went into biotech and uh, kind of genome sequencing companies, and then also chip makers. If you're following what's going on with the chip shortage, you cannot keep up with demand for high-performance computing right now. Some interesting industries to keep an eye on. Well, let's talk a moment about Semen Investing and um, this little partnership that you and I have uh, developed in terms of getting some of the advisors on to talk on our weekend watch list episodes. Um, it's been great. <laughs> I've been so enjoying talking to the advisors from Seven Investing. I really appreciate it too, Phil. Like I said, there's seven of us. I'm one of seven on this team. One, Anirban Mahanti is right there in your backyard down in Sydney. Luke Hallard is also in uh, London and the rest of us are based in the States. So we have got five different time zones on three different continents, which is kind of exciting. Challenging sometime for meetings and happy hours. <laughs> <laughs> bit like herding cats, is it? <laughs> yes, yes. In multiple languages and different time zones. But like we were saying earlier about the diversity of opinions, it's really interesting. When I started 7investing right from the start, I knew it couldn't just be me. I knew that I could see things a certain way, but it would be so much more awesome to have a full team that could say, hey, have you thought about this? Isn't this a risk? You know, maybe we should be considering this. We try to pull all of that into our research reports. I think every investor should, because you don't want to get blindsided. I mean, not every stock is going to knock it out of the park. Not every stock is going to outperform the S&P 500. But when they don't, I think that we should be at least aware of why that is. And so we like to identify those risk factors right up front. And you have to have a diversified team with lots of viewpoints to see that. And Seven Investing also publishes its results about um, the recommendations as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, real time even, Phil, our scorecard, seveninvesting.com slash recommendations. We'll always transparently report how we're doing in the good times and the bad. And I'm not afraid to speak up and say, we've got a high beta portfolio. We've got one that moves around a lot more than the market does, both in the good times and the bad. We are underperforming the market right now. We're not afraid to say that because we remember a couple of months ago, we were triple the S&P 500's return. But again, I think that that goes back to what type of investor are you? We've got some rock solid dividend payers that if you wanted to avoid that market volatility, we've got some filters in a way you can find those types of companies. And we've got some very high risk investments too, that if you want to say, hey, we think the market sell-off is temporary, Now's the time that I want to sprinkle in a little bit more risk into my portfolio. We've got options for those too. 
and domain experts, the advisors, in addition to having different opinions on things, we've got purposely kind of people that know what's going on in biotech versus computer science versus financial services, like you said earlier. We want to uncover a lot of rocks out there. And of course, if you use the promo code Stocks for Beginners, all lowercase one word, there's a $10 discount waiting for you on, um, on annual and monthly plans. I certainly appreciate that, Phil, and I'm enjoying this partnership with you. Thank you, as always. Simon, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.